Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I hope you guys are doing well. We're going to have a great time today with my guest, Jay Ferguson, who is the lead in the new CBS hit show, Living Biblically. I know you're going to love this podcast. Before I get started, I just want to thank you so much for all your support. I'll never stop saying it. You guys are incredible, and without you, there wouldn't be this show. It gets bigger and bigger every week, the audience, and it's all because of you guys telling your friends, subscribing. Again, I couldn't be more grateful. If you need to reach me or send anything to me, which you don't seem to have any problem doing, you can do so at at BarryCats on Twitter and Instagram or BarryCats.com. I love hearing from you guys. You're so supportive. Thank you so much. And as I sit across from Jay Ferguson... It's easy to see why this guy is successful. He is just such an amazing presence. I can't even begin to tell you how wonderful it is sitting across from somebody who has that feeling like everything is going to be okay. And this is a guy who started at an early age and did great things at an early age. Probably before the time he finished being a teenager, He was doing The Outsiders, was doing things like Evening Shade on CBS, which went to syndication, working with some of the greatest actors in the world when he wasn't even really technically probably ready to do so. But he made it a point with his talent, his skill set, his work ethic to put himself in a place where he was able to play ball with those people who are at a higher level, almost like a rookie coming in and playing with the greatest players in the world. 
people that you can't even imagine, like when Kyrie Irving played with LeBron James and did so well, or Larry Bird came onto the Celtics as a rookie and turned their team around from one of the worst teams in the league to the best, or even people that you see every day that you can't believe what they're doing, like Carson Wentz of the Philadelphia Eagles. And not to just use sports references, but you all know this. We've all seen movies and television shows where young actors come on, and they're amazing. They figure out a way to go toe-to-toe with the best, and it's really an incredible feeling. And sometimes you think to yourself, these people are old souls, and they're just able to do this. But I think it's more than that. It's an obsession with the craft. One of my sons does magic, and I see him practicing it over and over and over again. He's just a young kid failing time after time after time, 50, 100, 200, 500 times to learn one trick. And I thought to myself as I put him to bed the other night, how does he deal with so much failure? I mean, if I were playing Little League Baseball and I struck out 500 times in a row, I would never want to play again. But if you're really passionate about something, it doesn't matter how many times you fail. It doesn't matter how many times you go into a situation, whether you succeed or you don't, as long as you have that obsession for it. And as long as you're the kind of person who treats people like you want to be treated and really makes it a point to be the best representation of yourself. And Jay Ferguson is that person. And he started as a young actor winning, and he kept winning over and over again with great roles back to back to back to back to back. But the thing that you don't think about when you think of Jay Ferguson is failure. You don't think about it that this guy didn't work for a while. You don't think about it that this guy probably was wondering what else he could do in this world besides acting to support his family and his wife. But the world has a plan. And for him, perseverance, going out for everything he could and giving the best he could, even if the roles weren't the ones that he thought were right for him. There's no such thing as small roles, only small actors. And Jay made that decision, went out for everything, but the work ethic, the relationships with CBS, and the relationships with ABC all came together, and the rest is history. And now he's the lead on a CBS series, and we all know what that means. See Everybody Loves Raymond. See King of Queens. See Two and a Half Men. Shows on that network rarely fail. There's a reason for it. They know what they're doing, and so does Jay Ferguson. So if I think of anything when I look at him, I think of a guy who works harder than anyone I can possibly imagine and making sure he's prepared, ready, and willing to give everything he can to his craft, is able to get knocked down, get back up, and keep walking. And while he's walking, treats everyone that comes in his path with love and respect. And I can guarantee you, if you follow those kind of rules, 
you'll have the kind of career that Jay Ferguson has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone. This is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today to get going with my guest, Jay Ferguson. And without further ado, I'm going to get this thing started because this guy is going to really, really inspire you. Jay Ferguson was born in Dallas, Texas and grew up with his mom, actress Bobby Ferguson. In 1989, he was plucked from obscurity to play Pony Boy Curtis in the legendary television adaptation of S.E. Hinton's novel, The Outsiders. As a young man, he became friendly with fellow actor Leonardo DiCaprio. Relationships, everybody. And went on to have notable roles in a plethora of television projects, including four seasons of the CBS sitcom Evening Shade, playing Dr. Todd Hooper on Judging Amy, the role of Rich Connolly in the NBC television series Surface, Agent Warren Russell on the Showtime series Sleeper Cell, as Pat O'Neill, the father of the O'Neill family in the ABC series The Real O'Neills, and of course, who can forget the role of Stan Rizzo on the Emmy-winning AMC series Mad Men. Additionally, he's had numerous film roles, in movies like Higher Learning, The Lucky One, and as Elmer Conway in The Killer Inside Me with Golden Globe and Academy Award winner Casey Affleck. But you might know him right now as the lead in the new CBS series Living Biblically, Monday Nights on CBS. Please welcome my guest today. What a pleasure. What an honor. Jay Ferguson. Oh, boy. What a buildup. You have such an amazing energy. You have an old soul energy about you. And I know what you're saying. Oh, well, is it the Dinty Moore beard? <laughs> no, that's not the old soul energy that I'm talking that's about. Dinty Moore, that is a good call, man. You Never heard that one before. I you, love it. You can't go wrong with the word Dinty. Uh, it's always going to be funny. It's, I used to eat Dinty Moore all the time. There I, you go. I know exactly what it is. It's like Chris Rock's new special, Tambourine. Mm -hmm. There's certain words that are just funny right and it's unbelievable to me that no one in the history of comedy that I know of has used the word tambourine <laughs> and used it as an example as he has in his special. And I love words like that. Anyway, well, how I want to start is this, is that there's a sense of calm about you that's incredibly powerful. And in this profession of hired gun actor mm -hmm. you're always unemployed you're always a show ends and you never know what's going to happen and how it's going to happen but for some reason i sit across from you you're like a lake <laughs> compared to our business which is the ocean mm, well with high winds yeah well i've had high winds i've, I've had plenty of storms thunderstorms really I, I i have my moments of anxiety and and panic and fear um but probably you know having been at it for a while 
um, lends itself to knowing when to freak out about something and when not to, or, you know, just to stop freaking out altogether. Certainly having a family helped that, I'm sure, you know, my wife, my kids, they all contribute to, to that. They hearten me up. <laughs> so when I go out and, you know, into the, into the world at large, uh, I, I'm more prepared. I think also, you know, when you become a father and you, you try to start instilling certain things in, into your kids if you're, um, you know, if you're not living that life yourself, then then it's not going to be very effective on the kids. So I've tried to, uh, certainly it's been a work in progress, it still is, uh, but I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I, I try to, um, in my experience, uh, the best performances that I've been around um, and when I've felt like I've done my best has always been around people that are happy, pleasant, funny, calm, uh, and it's infectious, you know, it, it has a residual effect on the people around you and, um, and, and it just creates a great environment to be creative in. And uh, at least I've found that to be my happy place for working, you know, that, that I've been around plenty of sets where it's not like that. And I feel like certainly my work is compromised because uh, if uh, I'm not around people that I feel are setting a good tone, it doesn't, uh, it prohibits me from feeling free enough to try silly stuff, you know, and fail and fall on my face and embarrass myself in front of these people. Uh, it's a level of trust. It's a, you know, uh, a safe feeling that you want to have. And um, I, I, uh, I tried to, to, uh, I try to live that as much as I can, but it, you know, there's times. <laughs> now for our audience, what Jay is talking about is very similar to the job you might be in out there, wherever you're working, whether you're working at the 7-Eleven or a clothing line company. There's always the people who walk through the hallways who you run into and it's like, ah, God, I feel great around that person. What a great energy. And then around the corner, there's always somebody who you run into where the hair on the back of your neck stands up. Mm -hmm. And it's no different for productions. The difference being when you're in your job at the law firm or the 7-Eleven or the clothing line, you have options. You don't have a seven-year contract. Mm. You can get out of your job if somebody is making you miserable. But on a sitcom, you're tied to this thing that's the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. The good is you're a working actor. The good is you're making a shitload of money. And I'm not going to embarrass Jay, but I'll just share with the audience the least amount of money that a lead actor would ever make in a series ever I've ever heard of in my life. I hope it's less than what I'm was, was 20 years ago when Brett Butler 
got cast in the grace under fire and was making fifteen thousand dollars an episode and renegotiated about 13 episodes in when it went to number one and i think got sixty thousand for that year and more beyond and we all heard the renegotiations of ray romano 40 million dollars the last the eighth year Mm -hmm. but the point i'm trying to make is that even if you got the worst deal in history and your show goes seven years, you're doing better than 1% of 1% of 1% of the country and the world. Sure. The bad news is if you're on a set with a showrunner that for some reason rubs you the wrong way, you're in a tough situation. Yes, showrunners get fired. Matt Williams got fired from Roseanne. Jeff Franklin got fired from hanging with Mr. Cooper three episodes in, and the show went 100 episodes. But normally what happens is if you're a guy with the energy of Jay Ferguson, you want to try to make everything work. You want to figure out how to make everything work because you're the everything's going to be okay guy. And you're the lead actor on the show, and people look to you to be the stabilizing force. They ride on your shoulders. It's a very, very crucial role to lead in a show because you need to be able to navigate and be a chameleon with everybody because everybody's looking for the lead actor to fuck up. Not fuck up on the stage, but say something, do something that causes some kind of stir because people love drama in this crazy world and especially on sets. And so it's very hard to find the set where everyone loves each other and there's no conflict. It's relatively impossible to do. And so Jay's in a situation when he gets offered something or is involved in something, he doesn't get to meet the craft service person or the guy who carries the wires or the prop guy, the prop master. He doesn't get to meet the makeup and hair people. He doesn't even get to meet the producer, the associate producer, and the co-executive producer. Chances are he meets the executive producer or producers. He meets the studio and television executives, and he meets his fellow actors. And so when he gets there, you never know what's going to happen. And when I sit across from this man here, he doesn't seem to be the kind of guy who says, you know what? Can you not pick up that person's contract? Mm. That's not his lane. Mm. And so how do you deal with it when you go on a set? You've been on so many shows. You got the money. It's going well. Great lines that you're given. God, they're beautiful and you're delivering them. And there's a showrunner that even lets you change the lines on the floor, Mm -hmm. do whatever you want. But there's that one guy there that's in a position of power that just gets you under your skin. How do you handle and work through that? And what's the solution in those situations for you? Well, I've certainly been in in those situations. <laughs> uh, currently, I am proud and, and happy and thrilled to say that, that, that on the Living Biblically cast and crew, producers all down the line, every single position, uh, we don't have one sour grape, not one. Right. It's just been, I mean, now, you know, give us, check back in with me four or five years from now. Maybe that'll be different after we've all been, you know, gnawing at each other for, you know, consecutive years. Uh, but right now it's it's as perfect as, as as you could ever ask for. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable how perfect it is. 
Um, but in the past, yes, I have been in those situations. What advice would you give for the actor that's on a set like that to make it work? Persevering, first of all, you've just got to push forward because like you said, you're locked into it. Uh, usually you're never in a position of influence or power to where uh, you can you know, say anything that will even do anything. So you're kind of powerless. Um, you know, di directness is always a good approach. If, if you're having a problem, you, you, you go to, I mean, the same is true in life, you know. Uh, you can't run away from it, so you've got to confront it and try to talk to the person, probably first and foremost. And if that doesn't have an effect, you just got to try and stay in your lane and, um, you know, keep your head down and your mouth shut. I mean, that that is unfortunately sometimes, in certain cases, really what you have to do uh, to avoid, you know, getting swept up in any of that stuff. Um, I'm all for defending people, though. I, I, you know, I've got three rules that I live by um, in in my business, and and uh, I try to practice them, and I try to uh, spread the, the rules to anybody who's willing to listen. And and it is uh, to show up on time, to know your lines, and to respect the crew. Now, two of those three things can be broken from time to time, and you get a pass. You know, you're late a couple times, you know, and you know, whatever. You know, you forget, everybody forgets lines from time to time. So, you know, that's that's fine too. But n you don't get a pass on being disrespectful to the crew. So I would say that, that yes, I'd, I would encourage people to stay in their lane, mind their own business, try to avoid conflict. But if you are, are, are you know, presented a situation where somebody's being disrespectful to somebody else, trying to bully somebody, trying to use their power or influence over them to demean them in any way, uh, to absolutely stick up for that person. And I've done that several times. And, uh, and I will not tolerate that. And, and no, thank, like I said, on, our, on, our, on this crew that I'm working on right now, we don't have anybody like that. No, no divas, no, no egos with, the, with any of the actors. I mean, it's just, you know, and we got some heavy hitter actors on this show. So, I mean, these aren't, these aren't rookies by any means. So it's, uh, it's extraordinary that, that we have the opportunity that we do. And really, I mean, aside from, you know, all of the reasons, all of the good things that you listed and, and, and you know, being, being working and, you know, making an in, a decent income and, and uh, uh, you know, getting to do what I love for a living, uh, aside from wanting the show to go for all of those reasons, uh, the cast and I alike want it to go because we we know we're not done yet and we have so much fun together and I think we all appreciate how unique this situation is with with there being a lack of egos and drama and divas on our on our cast and we want to take full advantage of that you know while before any of us you know develop any of those habits hopefully it's not going to be me well I've heard your principles on a set I'm curious what are some of the fundamental principles that you teach your three boys? Mm, kindness, um, you know, one of the, I think if I wasn't a parent, I'm not sure that this show would have appealed to me as much. Um, but it did precisely for the reason, uh, or precisely because a lot of the things I feel like is at the core of this show and, and 
as much as we can on a little comedy show trying to, you know, underlying message I think that the show is trying to promote is kindness, trying to be a better person. And for me, it's even uh, deeper than that and in, in that um, I don't subscribe to what I believe is a false narrative and propaganda that that we in this country and, and really in the world, but specifically in this country, are um, have more differences than we do similarities. And I feel like that is a tool by our elected officials on both sides. It's been perpetuated for decades and um, has, has, you know, sowed the, the division that we now see um, so highlighted. Uh, and so I feel like this show has a wonderful opportunity to try to illustrate that no matter what you believe or if you don't believe anything at all, that we all have a lot more in common than we do different. And with my boys, I try to, my wife and I both tried to remind them of that, um, to, to always practice kindness. Now they don't do it with one another, but when they get out in the world, they are some of the best kids that you've ever seen. Well, I have two boys. They could be beating the shit out of each other in the house. And I'm like, I can't believe I got to separate you guys again. This is unbelievable. And then three hours later, we'll be going to a family event somewhere where there's all these different people. And all through the day, people will be coming up to you. Your boys are so <laughs> incredibly yes, well-mannered. It's exactly. unbelievable. And I know. And when it happens, I have to like remind myself, yes, they are like the best kids, you know. <laughs> but, you know, just to... to, to tie a bow on that uh, question, I, I, you know, it is uh, very important to um, stick up for yourself, stick up for other people in terms of what we've tried to instill in the boys and try to have a smile, you know, and, uh, you know, smiling, laughing, loving, these are all things that can, that can really change the world. And, um, you know, if more practice, more people practice them, it, it's just so, so, so simple as just, you know, saying hello to somebody or giving them a, a pat on the back or asking them how, how their day was, you know, can really have an impact on people. And, you know, it's something that I, I realized that uh, all of the things I was so consumed with in my younger years and on into my 20s and even into my 30s a little bit, all uh, it became clear to me that I that all of those things, none of them were really that important. And the only thing that was important was that when I leave this earth, you know, my legacy is is are my children, not even my career. You know, uh, it's it's uh, about if you if you're lucky enough to be a parent, you want to try to mold your children into. Uh, adults that are going to make the world a better place and uh, and that's our responsibility as parents really and uh, and so hopefully uh, I think we're achieving that my wife is is the most incredible person that you've ever met and um, has that effect I'm, I'm, I'm telling you I got it from her uh, any type of palpable aura or anything is all due to her because she's the the one that's got that. I mean, you know, she she changes people's lives just by smiling at them. So um, I, I credit her. They say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a guy, she's going to be with him. Mm. Did she know? I don't know if it was 
five minutes, but it was pretty quick uh, for both of us. And where did you guys be? We, we met uh, uh, through mutual friends in passing very quickly, but she was striking. And, you know, I, I couldn't get, out of, get, her, get her out of my head, but I didn't see her again. Months went by. I was at an airport in Dallas coming back here after being there with my family for Christmas. And um, I had gotten a, a camera for my for Christmas for my dad that year, uh, my first 35 millimeter camera. And uh, I had it strapped around my neck, I was just taking pictures of everything. And we were at the airport and uh, you know, it was pre 9-11, so before you know, my dad would still hang out with me until I'd get on the plane. And uh, there's this girl sitting up against uh, the gate of another another gate next to ours. You're reading a book, eating some stuff. And I point her out to more far away, and I point her out to my dad. Look at, look at that girl. She's pretty hot. I'm going to take a picture of her. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, I aim out the camera, and you know, I'm still getting used to it. So it's got one of the auto flashes on it. And I didn't know it. So I take the picture, and the flash goes off, and she looks up, and I look away. And she didn't see me. And, you know, another half an hour goes by. Finally, I'm getting on the plane, boarding. My dad's still with me. And a girl that I took the picture of is walking in my direction, looking right at me, smiling. I thought, oh, geez, she saw me. I'm busted, you know. And she walks up to me. She says, hey, I know you. I, I didn't recognize her at first. And then it dawned on me that this was the girl I'd met that day months before that. Um, and she was on my flight. She was changing planes in Dallas to come back home from where her parents live. And I said, well, are you on this flight? And she said, yes. I said, well, let's sit together and I'll tell you a funny story. And uh, so we sat together on the plane. We were both in relationships, other relationships at the time though. You know, and then uh, we would see each other around town and, and, and you know, it was one of, it's a cl classic romance story. You know, I had her number on my phone, but I never called her. But every time I changed my phone, I'd purge all my old numbers I didn't use. And I'd always put her number in anyway, you know, even though I never called, you know, weird shit like that. And the picture at the airport was obviously like the weirdest thing. Um, and, uh, and then um, one night we, um, uh, saw each other and we were uh, both single so then we uh, we went out to dinner and that was it and it was literally like that like that was it right from then I mean we knew both of us knew for years and it had been years uh, before we from when we initially met till we finally got together and then we were together for um, eight years and uh, and then we got married and now we've been married for ten years you make plans and God laughs. Yeah. Think about what the chances are that you guys were in the same airport in the same flight. It's crazy. It was, it, I mean, I, you can't tell that story without appreciating. Uh, I mean, even me telling it when I hear it, but even as a listener of, of the of the story, you can't help but but notice the the fairy taleish uh, niche ness about it. <laughs> I just think fate is just so amazing. Yeah. I think of one of Louis C.K.'s jokes that I always loved when he was first starting out. You ever see somebody that you really don't know 
again. <laughs> you know, you're you're at the bank and you see them and then you go to the grocery store three years later and yeah. they're there. It's like God is running out of extras in a movie of your life. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, that that happens. That happens all the time. But your whole life changed because of that fate full thing because that was the moment mm -hmm. just I'm getting this from you you're not telling me but my instinct tells me that was the moment when you knew you were going to be with that person at some point in time you were going to figure it out yeah well oh yeah the plane ride is what sealed the deal for sure I mean I when I took the picture of her I thought she was just some random girl in the airport I had you know let's face it this town is littered with people who can't make a relationship work so what is it about your relationship that's so different than every other relationship in this town? How do you make it work and have this strong bond, not just with your wife, but with your kids and the family? Mm -hmm. And Well, first of all, my wife is the most patient, tolerant person that I know. And um, if, if you aren't patient and tolerant, uh, then, then you'd have a hard time being with me. And so uh, that's first and foremost. I think the foundation of our relationship has always been laughter. We both love to laugh. We both we both have like little kid type mentalities and senses of humor. Um, and and that now we we pass on to our kids who kind of have that same way about them. Uh, but yeah, I think that the two of us have just always. I mean, both of us throughout our whole lives before we even met each other, we, we were jokers. We were class clowns. We, we loved to laugh. We were just always giddy people. And, uh, you know, one of my, I mean, if not my favorite sound is, is somebody hysterically laughing, you know, it's just the greatest. And, um, and so I just think that that has, it created a, a, a tone, I guess, in our relationship where, we never really fought, you know, I mean, we've had disagreements about things, but I mean, as far as like what would, what I guess most married couples would, would define as a fight, I don't really even know if we've ever had one. Uh, I'm sure my wife would probably disagree with that statement, but uh, it's just been, you know, perfect. And uh, I think that a lot of people try to make things work when they're just not compatible, you know. And, and I mean, something, you know, sometimes it's, it's not meant to be. I mean, luckily with her and I, it is. But um, I'd, I'd say that if you're people that like to laugh, then you should always be able to find a way to make it work, you know. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, 
you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. One of the things I love about talking to you is I'm sitting across from a guy who it feels like you've never stopped working. Now, I know for you as an actor, you would say, well, I've gone a year without working. Mm -hmm. But a year in acting is not that long. Sure. And you just have this presence about you that I feel like if I were a network executive mm -hmm. or a studio executive and you walked in, I just say to myself, hey, listen, this is our guy. This guy walks onto sets every day, on time, mm. prepared, and he's done over 300 episodes of television. Mm. If I'm at CBS and I'm Julie Pernworth mm -hmm. at CBS or... Julie's uh, our girl. And I'm in the room and you're walking in. Now, I don't even know, to be honest with you, if I want to test you, I don't even want to know if I have a chance of losing you. Mm. Normally what they do is they test people and you have to go through the process where you audition for the casting director of your young actor. You have a pre-read mm -hmm. with the casting director so she knows she's not going to bring somebody. Next time you'll go with the casting director, do your audition, get put on tape. Right. Next it'll go to the producers and then you'll do a producer session. And if they like you, then you'll go and they'll make a deal with you right. for five, six years, sometimes seven years. Yes, the gauntlet of auditioning. Yeah, Saturday Night Live, it's eight years. And then you sign a contract that where you sign your life away. Every number, every amount of money, every single bump and salary is there, and it's all laid out for you. And then you go into a room to test for the studio executives, and you're normally going up against a minimum of two people and a maximum of four other people. Mm -hmm. And then after the studio test, the studio decides who they want to kick to the curb and who they want to bring to the network. Right. And normally it's reduced by two or three people mm -hmm. at that point. And then the order that they put the people on, they strategize who they're going to put on first, who they're going to put on second, who they're going to put on third. So awful. And you're finishing and you're testing and you leave the room and it's the weirdest thing. It's like an EF Hutton commercial. So whoever the network president is in the room, or if it's a studio test, the studio, when it's the studio test, the person leaves the room after our audition, they walk out the door, the door closes and everybody turns their head and <laughs> looks towards the studio head. And he'll say, I don't think that's the right person or, very interesting. I like that person. Right. When you get to the network stage, the next one where the studio is there and the network, nobody turns their head and looks to the studio executive. They look to the network president, which is Julie, would be the one in the room probably, although Les has been in rooms when he wasn't even there, sure. Les Moonves. But I presume Julie was the one in the room that they were looking towards. Uh, th there, uh, let me see, at that point, was Julie in there? I feel like uh, it must have been. I don't 
she was there. Yeah, she was there. She was there for our network stuff. I'm just trying to get them mixed up because I did the studio with the other actors and and did the I did their I did their studio and network test with the with the actors uh, uh, to play uh, Vince, uh, Tony Rock's character, and uh, the actors to play uh, Leslie, which is Lindsay Kraft's character. Got it. So you tested for both roles. Yeah, fascinating. I presume you tested for the Tony Rock role first. Yeah, I think they were right around the same time. They they really it, it took it took a while to find Lindsay Craft. And what was fascinating, you were telling me the story of how your last gig got canceled and literally a day later or yeah. two days later you get the call for this. It was ridiculous. This is something that networks and studios don't like to do. They want to have their man free and clear. They don't want to know that there's a chance they could lose him. Right. Because if they do all the paperwork and test them and they go do a pilot and then that guy is on another show that could go and trump it and take away from it and be in the first position, then they're in trouble and it costs them a lot of money. But when they find a great actor like Jay, they're willing to do things in the second position. Jennifer Aniston was in the second position for Friends. Mm -hmm. So he was on a show for two years. The thought process was that show was going to get canceled, but there was no word that it was going to get canceled. Uh, we'd shot the pilot and, uh, and, 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 and you, you're correct that they, they did it in second position. I think that at that point when, um, when they were trying to work it out and see if they were going to approve the second position or not, the, enough of the real O'Neill season had already been shown enough to know, um, I mean, they never, r r seldomly anyway, well, they pull the plug on a show um, if it's kind of, you know, on the fence. They'll wait until May. Even if everybody in the world knows there's no way it's coming back, they'll wait. And that's kind of what they were. They did on the on the O'Neills. Um, we all saw the writing on the wall, though. Um, the numbers were just not there for it. It was a great show and, and had a great message. Um, great people. But. Uh, the numbers just weren't happening. And so even though we all knew it was most likely not going to come back, uh, we also knew that we were under contract and that they weren't going to tell us until May, which meant that all of the actors on that show were going to miss out on that pilot season. And, and really, you know, because because second position is so rare and, and really doesn't happen. And if it does happen, it's usually for a role that's a supporting role that's further down the totem pole where they can replace it and maybe not lose as much money as you were saying. Um, but certainly for the lead role, it is it's very uncommon. And so I really didn't even th think it was going to happen. Um, but like I said, enough, enough numbers had come in up until that point that they felt like it was a safe bet. And, uh, but again, you never know for sure. And, and so May rolls around. We shoot the pilot. May rolls around. You've done a ton of pilots. Right. So it's a wrap. Everybody applauds. Mm -hmm. You get in your car, you drive home. How do you feel about living biblically versus the other pilots you shot in the past that didn't go mm -hmm. or the ones that did? Uh, I, I felt very good about it. Um, and, and that's saying a lot because I, I haven't always felt that way. I, 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 in fact, over this whole process with this show, excuse me, before we were even picked up, especially after we shot the pilot, um, 
I've I've been very op- un- uncharacteristically optimistic about this show. Uh, I think that it's a good rule of thumb in this business to to never really get your hopes up because the, the truth is the odds are always against you at every step of the way, and uh, and so it's better to you know hope for the best but prepare for the worst. And uh, and so I think that that's been my mindset going into most pilots uh, over the course of my career. And after having learned a couple of times, uh, after getting my hopes up, and then it not, you know, and then it becoming a heartbreaker, um, I had that happen enough to then kind of develop a little bit of a, a co- you know coat of armor and and just stop not caring, but stop, just stop worrying about it, you know. And if it happens, great. And if it and it most likely is not going to though, so let's prepare for what the next step's going to be. Uh, on this, however, I have I have really believed uh, ever since we shot the pilot that it was gonna. I, I just felt like it it had it. I felt like the the experience was too special for me for everybody else on the show. Um, that that either we were all incredibly delusional, or we had something, and um, and so. It, it's been kind of liberating and fun to be optimistic and, you know, for, for once. Uh, and, um, and then I got the call on, on a Thursday that the O'Neills was not going to be, was officially not coming back. That was a hurdle that needed to be cleared because I needed to, uh, I wanted to go down this new path on this new show. And, and so once that happened, then I, I had to wait to find out now, will they, uh, will they complete this, uh, this perfect scenario? Um, I shouldn't say perfect scenario because I loved the O'Neills and I, and I, I, I would never uh, want our showrunners who I, I loved, uh, Casey Johnson and David Windsor and Stacey Traub. I think they're all great people and you know, we had a great thing going. Uh, but I, I knew that the writing was on the wall and I wanted to be able to prepare for my next step. And, so when I say perfect scenario, I don't mean to uh, disparage anybody. But um, so Thursday, I get the call. The O'Neills is not coming back. The following day, Friday, were, were the um, was the day that CBS, I guess, was making their decision. And I was actually um, on. A, I was I was working in Miami, and I was getting on a plane to come back here. And right before I got on the plane. Uh, either one of our producers or another actor sent me a link to a deadline article that had been posted that said CBS had picked up its shows and we weren't on the list. And they picked up a couple comedies, you know, a couple dramas, the standard thing. And so here I am getting ready to get on this plane, you know, for this long ride home. And I'm thinking, shit, man, really? Wow. I really, I really felt like, you know, maybe we, we had it, but all right. I guess it's time to go grab a drink on the plane, <laughs> cry myself to sleep. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I, I briefly spoke with Johnny Galecki before I got on the plane, and, and he was still optimistic. I don't know how, but he was still optimistic. And uh, I said, "Okay, well, you know, I'll I'll get the I'll have Wi-Fi on the plane, so if anything changes, text me." And uh, and about an hour into the flight, he texted me that we we got the order. It was just incredible, you know. And then, then of course, suddenly now I'm stuck on this plane, and all I want to do is just jump around and scream and yell, and 
I got to be quiet and in the library and, uh, <laughs> but it was, it was really cool. And, um, you know, I just, I, I really believe that this is all, this is all happening for a reason. And, 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 and then there, there's a plan in place and, you know, we've got a lot of work to do still. This is just the beginning. So they always say some things you do for the respect and some things you do for the cash mm. and some things, if you're lucky enough, they garner respect and they bring the cash. Right. And you have a partner in your wife that's such a strong part of your life. I imagine she's a part of a lot of the decision making. Sure. Do you guys struggle with certain decisions since you've been married that you do for the money, but you know the material isn't that great and whether you should do that project or not? Or do you never struggle with that? Well, I've certainly struggled with it in the past, to be sure. Um, uh, there, there have been, there's a laundry list of things that I've done uh, for the check. Um, I've been very blessed, though, over the last eight years or so uh, to have, uh, well, I was on something where it was, uh, it was certainly I got the respect, uh, but there was zero cash, and that was Mad Men. But that was the same across the board for everybody on that show. Um, but people were willing to, to pay the network to be on that show. So, you know, they, I would have done it for free. Um, but the payoff was that whatever followed Mad Men um, was was going to, you know, be a situation that would most likely give me a little bit of a bump. And uh, and that's what happened. Hopped on, um, I did a pilot as we were filming the last season of Mad Men and it did not pick, get picked up, but it was um, it was uh, it was on CBS, but ABC Studios did it, and then I did a deal with ABC Studios to stay stay with them and try to put something together, and then that's what got me on the O'Neills, um, and then at each step, you know, uh, I was blessed to to be making. I mean, listen, even I wasn't making a lot on Mad Men, but it's still a good living. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to act like I wasn't getting anything. I mean, I was getting something, and certainly enough for us to live on. Um, the, 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 the issue for, you know, the first four years of our kids' lives was it was a little more hand-to-mouth uh, than I would have liked for it to have been. Um, I, I wanted uh, I wanted my wife to not have to work if she didn't want to. When you're doing Mad Men, you get the script, you walk on the set, you deliver the lines the way they're written. Mm -hmm. That's what they want you to do. Word for word. Word for word. Letter for letter. That's right. <laughs> and there's only two guys in half-hour comedy that I know of that operate that way. That's Jeffrey Cleric and David Crane on episodes mm -hmm. where not one word gets changed. Yeah. Doesn't matter if the lead actor comes to them and says, I think this would be better that way. Right. That's nice that you think that. Now get back there and do it the way we have it. <laughs> do you prefer the Mad Men thing where you get the lines and you deliver them with the tone that they want you to word for word? Or do you like it better on shows like Living Biblically where you can go up to the executive producer after a take and say, hey, do you mind if I try this thing here? And they say, sure, go ahead. Uh, I would say it's a little bit of both. Um, I, 
uh, I learned very quickly on Mad Men that that my input was was not necessarily uh, they were not very really <laughs> interested in it, and that was fine. I was just so grateful to be there. You know, I I, I didn't care. I'll say the, the words the way you want me to, um, and uh, and and I think that that after doing it for so long, because you know we did it for well they did it for seven years. I was on it for three and a half, um, and that's the only way I worked for three and a half years was that's that's how I went to work and did my job was under those you know circumstances and there after a while I realized oh wow you know uh, the lazy guy in me realized hey this means if I this means I have to do less work because they're making they make all of your choices really for you with their the writing was so specific on that show that that you, it, it left very little room for the actor to uh, make choices or you know interpretations like th there there was really only one way to go and it was the way they were guiding you to go with the words and it was a very um, comforting liberating safe experience because I knew I was taken care of I knew that the writing got it done and um, all I had to do is open up my mouth and let the words come out and it was good so the safe part of that the trust part of that is nice however um you know being in a situation where it's collaborative and uh you know everybody's tossing stuff around there's something to say for that too um it, it you know you can have both you can have the trust and the safe feeling uh if you're with people that you trust and feel safe around so uh, uh, it's been kind of a mixture of both on this show which has been uh, just so much fun and you know 99 out of 100 of my suggestions will be awful but the blind squirrel you know every now and then <laughs> comes through and uh and i'll get a pitch in that that works you know it's great when you when you tell i mean i i could never be you know in that writer's room i don't know how these guys do it but you know, you, you look at Patrick, our showrunner, and, and the gang of writers that we have, which is, I mean, like 10 to 12 people, I think. And you pitch a joke and, and crickets. And, you know, <laughs> there's nothing worse than than a writer's room full of crickets, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I really, it, I, this, you know, I never thought I'd do a multicam show. When you're on a show like Mad Men, if I'm an actor, I'm saying to myself as I'm on it because... As you shared with me, you started as a recurring and then you became a series regular. Another rare thing mm. that happens. Let's face it, you're on the St. Regis of television. Sure. And normally, multi-camera shows, and for our audience, just so you know, when you're watching television, the single camera shows that you're watching are the ones that... There's no laughter, or sometimes there might be a laugh track, but you can tell that they're out on the road, they're out in certain public situations. There's hybrid shows like Seinfeld, if you remember that, when they used to do single camera on the outside right. and they do multicam on the inside. Right. And then there's just multicam where there's specialty directors that just work in this field like Andy Ackerman or Jim Burroughs. But everything is just done in an old school right. way. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you was this dilemma mm. when you're coming off one of the greatest shows in the history of our medium. Mm -hmm. 
very few multi-camera shows you can point to and say they were top shows, but a lot of them never garnered the respect that they probably should have in terms of the single camera shows. Yeah. So you're sitting there with your wife, you know the opportunity is coming, you're offered a show. You don't have to test anymore. Mm -hmm. You want the show, Jay? It's yours. This is what we're offering. Okay, we'll offer you a little more. Okay, I know you're passing on that offer. We'll offer you more. This is our final offer. And you're sitting there with your wife and you know you have a family, everything. Mm -hmm. And living biblically, by the way, I just want to share this. Fucking great show. But it is multi-camera. People don't rally around it in the respect right. world as much as they rally around single camera. Sure. Was that something that was eating at you or was it because the material and the cast was so great mm. that you said, you know what? I'm going to bet on Les Moonbez at the top of this umbrella. He knows what he's doing. He's always been successful. He's figured out a way to do it. Yes, Netflix is taking the world by storm, but something tells me he's going to figure out a way to navigate mm -hmm. and get us to the promised land. Or were you worried about it? Well, you're always a little bit worried. I mean, I was actually terrified. Um, I was um, very apprehensive, but only for out of fear. Um, I, I let go of the notion a long time ago when I actually, when we started having kids and I, I kind of started getting a little more focused and serious about, you know, really trying to make a career out of this thing, um, that I had spent too long in my career and probably lost out on too many great experiences because I was, um, I was, I was selective, but I had no, I had no, I, there was nothing about my career that warranted me being selective. I hadn't earned anything. I hadn't paid any dues. I, 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 I don't know what I was thinking. I was young and dumb and, and not, um, not right in the head, but, uh, I, I, I abandoned those notions and just decided that, you know, nothing was going to ruin my career. I, I, I mean, I, I guess that, that's possible. I just don't see that happening in this day and age. It seems like people can bounce back and, you know, they have a stinker. That's okay. And follow it up with, you know, something that's not a stinker. All of a sudden they're redeemed, you know? So, uh, I, I decided really out of desperation because I knew we need, I needed to make money to support this new family that I said to myself, I'll do anything. I don't care anymore. You know, I've got to make money. And that's the priority. And so now I'm willing to do anything. And I started going out for things that I would have never gone out for before, like that I thought I was above or some crazy, you know, notion like that. And uh, the, the irony, though, was that the things I started to get were, were actually pretty well-respected things and uh, culminating with Mad Men. Um, but I don't think that I had, I don't, it's weird, but I don't think I would have even gotten Mad Men had I not made the decision to let go of all that old shit and open myself up to, to whatever. I will tell you this, that, uh, once I made that decision, I was, um, terrified of doing a live show in front of people and if there was any apprehension, it was because of that. 
not because I was afraid it would fail or, uh, you know, was it good? I knew it was good. I, I knew the writing was good. And I knew the people on the creative side of things um, were all people that, that I respected and believed in. So all of those parts were, t were I felt totally safe about, but I was absolutely terrified about doing something in front of people, you know, I haven't done a lot of theater. It's not really my bag of, you know, used to a very small, you know, set with very few people on it. When I started this town, they were busing in inmates to these tapings. Oh, oh, we, we had some we had some crazy crowds at some of them, to be sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that was that was something that that gave me pause. But um, after we did our, our uh, we got about a quarter of the way through our first taping of our pilot and it and it and the fear started to subside and this weird sensation of like fun and hey i'm enjoying myself right now doing this in front of people like the them here is like a huge part of the fun and 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 that was an interesting kind of light bulb moment and it was like the rest of the taping for the pilot. I was jazzed, you know, it was a real new feeling for me. And uh, I wanted to, I wanted more of that feeling. And, and so, uh, th but then when, when it got picked up and we, you know, would do our, our weekly tapings, I was terrified every night, <laughs> every night we'd have a taping. I, I'd start, I, it's the same pattern. I start off terrified for about the first or second scene. And then once everybody kind of settles in, primarily once I settle in, um, and also, you know, you know right away if you've got a great audience or not. We, I think we, we maybe had one audience that was kind of subpar, but I think they eventually even came around later in the taping. But we were so lucky to have great audiences every, and, and so that really helps to set the nerves at ease, you know, when you're starting out in a taping, if you get laughs right off the bat, then you know it's gonna be a good night and you can kind of, you know, relax a little bit. And so that's what I started to realize. And, you know, about 20, 30 minutes into our taping, I settled into it and start to have fun, which is, it's a great feeling. It really is. Uh, I, I never expected it. Um, you know, I, I, f I tried to force myself for so long to be, you know, whatever version I thought I needed to be uh, of an actor, you know, serious, dramatic. Um, and and then I get on this 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 drama that to me was a hilarious comedy, Mad Men. I, you know, I know it won, won all these awards for dramas and stuff, but every table read you would have thought you were at a, a, a sitcom table read. And, uh, and, and, I, the irony is that I'm on this respected drama, but then I, I, they start to make me like a comic relief type of character, which then suddenly now I'm doing comedy on this drama show. And then it ends. Well, what am I going to do next? And the, and the people that were like the first to call were comedy related things. And I thought to myself, wait, do these people really think that, that I'm a funny person? Because... I don't feel like I'm a funny person. I like to laugh and I, I like to make my wife laugh. I think she thinks I'm funny, but 
you know, as far as like being a funny actor, I've never been a very witty guy in terms of like improv or, um, you know, being able to come up with something really sharp on the fly. I need a little time, you know, I gotta, I gotta marinate on things a little longer than most people do. And that doesn't usually work in the world of comedy, but, uh, I, I guess I found a little niche, you know, and I, I um, decided to run with it. You know, shoot, if they if they if they're willing to if they if they're gonna believe in me, then then I'll 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 disappoint them if they want. But uh, you know, until they they find out that it's all a big you know facade. Uh, but yeah, it, it's great because they let. I think that what works for me in this in this format is. I'm not a goofy guy. I can't do goofy. I can't do shticky. I can't do, you know, what some people would consider to be like stereotypical, uh, you know, multi-camera acting, um, you know, winks of the eye to camera, you know, just things like that. Uh, it's not my thing. But if they let me just try to say it like a real person, then I think uh, that, that works for me because then I don't, I, I feel like I can do that comfortably and, and, and feel good about it. And then what I realized is that just playing the thing straight, we're getting, would get bigger laughs than trying to do some hokey, you know, gag. Uh, and I've also been, you know, lucky enough to be exposed to, to older actors, uh, that, that, uh, I, I did a show when I was a kid. Uh, called Evening Shade, and at the time, you know, I was too young to really appreciate the the um, crazy cast that we had on that show. But they were all, you know, giants in the industry, and you know, I could run down the list of how every one of them was great. But in for the purpose of this point, I'm trying to make. But Hal Holbrook, right? Hal Holbrook, who is, you know, uh, he does Mark Twain on stage for God's sakes, and you know, uh, is like a history buff and uh, one of the more serious guys you'll ever see whenever he's doing dramatic material. But he is incredibly fucking funny. And and his he would get some of the biggest laughs on that show because he just played everything straight. And he never went for the joke. He never went for a gag. You know, he always just kind of had a ho-hum look on his face. And it was really funny. And uh, I, I, I've kind of tried to, um, you know, approach comedy that that same way. Nothing wrong with Ice Cube and Friday. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Ben Stiller and Meet the Parents. <laughs> and if you notice, for our audience in the talk show world, there's no Jim Carrey's hosting the talk show because you need to be grounded on mm. television. And almost every single lead in every successful half-hour comedy show you'll ever see, the lead has to be somebody who people can rally around and, the, and be the voice of reason with mm -hmm. the crazy people around you. They have to be the person that we all feel we are in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Can you believe Betty in accounting? She's nuts. Yes, there's exceptions to the rule. Martin was crazy. But for the most part, every single show is that way. You have to have it. You have to be that person. And, and that's why I think this is going to be in great shape. 
Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over a hundred chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, way back for a second. Okay. Take me back to where you grew up, mm -hmm. what the household was like, mm -hmm. the family members, what the economic nature was to your household, and then what was your first inspiration of getting in this crazy business oh. and led you to that first huge break mm -hmm. working on Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders as Pony Boy when you were a teenager right. at 14. Yep. Well, I'm from Dallas, Texas. Started my life out there. Mom and dad split up. I was f six, five, five when they split up, six, yeah, six when it was all kind of finalized. But, um, and my mom was an actor and she had a, a, a potential job waiting for her out here teaching acting and she also wanted to kind of you know she had been doing act she'd been making a good enough living in dallas as an actor for all the local stuff uh, and uh, but she wanted to you know test out la la and and, and see you know if she could make it so she and I came out here in 81. Uh, the economics of our family were always middle class, uh, I'd say. I mean, certainly there were tough times, um, but we were able to uh, move out here and mom was able to find a nice house. Uh, and uh, so we were able to move into a, a house in a nice neighborhood. and. Um, I started my schooling out here and go back to, to Dallas every time I wasn't in school. So summer times, vacation times, it was always spent back in Dallas with my dad and my, my dad's side of the family. And, uh, I was never, uh, into the, the acting. It wasn't really something that, that did anything for me. I did some school plays and things, but. Uh, I wasn't begging my mom to become a professional actor. Um, and I don't think she, she was certainly not begging me to become, become one either. Uh, and then I went to, um, I went, 
I, I, was at, I was eating at a restaurant with my mom, and this f- uh, female agent came up and asked if I was an actor, and I wasn't. And, uh, and you know, gave my mom her card and said, well, you know, if you change your mind, you call. And so we went home, and she asked me if I, would, if I wanted to start auditioning and, and checking it out. And, uh, and I said, sure. So then... Um, You're how old? I am probably 10, I think. Well, maybe a little, maybe 10 or 11, something like that. And I go on auditions, t- terrible. I hate it. But I don't enjoy it at all. Um, there's, there's, I don't, uh, you know, the rejection as a child is, is an almost an impossible thing to deal with. I always thought that's the great thing about being a kid. You don't know what a setback really is because you just know there's something else right around the corner or you don't feel it as much, but you did. Yeah, I think I, I think I wanted to, um, I think I wanted to make my mom proud probably. So I really wanted to succeed, you know, and I would go on these auditions and some of them were commercial auditions, some of them were other things. and. You know, I never was feeling comfortable. I never really felt like I was doing great. And then, and then, basically, what happens is, after you do that enough times as a child, I mean, everything is longer through a child's eyes. Everything takes longer. Driving through traffic to an audition, you know, feels like four hours if it's an hour to a child. And so, you know, driving all over town to these auditions that weren't panning out for me war on my my desire to even do it at all it's just i would rather be playing with my friends you know this is nonsense and um uh, and then you know on the flip side my mom my poor mom just driving me all over creation taking time out of her day to try and you know get me to these auditions and work with me on them and and you know try to make it all worthwhile and and then i'm just become i'm just kind of disinterested in the whole thing i went to a uh I went to a performing arts junior high school in uh, Pacoima, and uh, back when it was still junior high school before it was middle school. Now it's middle school. Can't believe they put sixth graders, seventh and eighth graders. It's crazy to me. But anyway, don't get me started. Uh, I went to this school and um, went there trying to. Uh, I thought I was going to be in the drama. Club. I decided my mom didn't want me to go to the drama club or any of after school clubs because she didn't. I, I don't think that she wanted to uh, have to come later to pick me up at Pacoima. So, uh, uh, but I did it anyway and I auditioned for the drama club uh, without her knowing. I didn't tell her I was going to do it and I did it and uh, and I got in the drama club. I was very excited to tell her. She was she was she was receptive to me being in it once it happened. But then uh, as you, you know, you'd stay after school for these uh, programs. And as we were, we were, we'd stay after school to rehearse drama stuff or like the drama festivals. And you'd see the kids from the dance production. I was in drama production. And I'd see the kids from the dance production, you know, across the campus going into their area to practice their stuff or, you know, whatever they were doing. And I noticed that that's where all the hot girls were. And, and I said, well, that's where I want to be. And so after my, that semester in the drama production, I left the drama production and I went and auditioned for the dance production. Now, I had no right 
auditioning for the dance of production. That was not, that had never been on my radar. It was not something that, uh, you know, I, I, I had all of these ambitions to, I, it, was, it was purely about the girls. Somehow, I think because my dear, dear teacher, the teacher that had more of an impact on me, well, one of many teachers that had a big impact on me uh, is Miss Lee Baker. And uh, Miss Baker must have felt really sorry for me <laughs> and decided to allow me to come into the dance production. So um, now the, the interesting thing about the dance production class was that I got into it for the girls, but then I ended up falling in love with this art form and uh, really loving it and, and just having such a great time with the other people in that production and and my the, my teacher miss baker who treated us all like peers and that's why everybody that's why all the kids in that school loved her because she treated you like a like a human but um and also inspired us one monkey don't stop no show she had a ton of quotes that she yelled at the class one monkey don't stop no show that was one of them that means that it, it, just because one of the dancers in the class isn't doing very well if you think you're too important and we won't go on without you well then think again tell us more of her quotes <laughs> oh god this is not burger king you cannot have it your way that was another <laughs> one she had printed on the wall <laughs> i wish i could remember some more i think that's all i could remember that's okay but she she had a bunch of them she was great um and uh anyway so as all of this is happening, you know, now we're on into seventh grade, the second semester in second, uh, seventh grade was my first semester with the dance production. And then I stuck with it all through eighth grade, all through ninth grade. So by the end of my ninth grade year, when I was 14, um, I decided that I wanted to go where all my friends were going in dance production for high school, which was a, a dance oriented high school. And so I was really going through with this dance thing. You know, this is like suddenly, total, you know, veering off of any type of path onto this totally foreign new thing. And, um, but I had still, all through junior high, been auditioning, you know, doing the audition thing that was ne not panning out, never getting anything, was not something I was interested in anymore. And now my interest is rising in this other art form. And I get an audition, I get a call to go in for The Outsiders. And now, had you booked anything up to this point never. in acting? So you've auditioned how many times for acting and failed? I mean, it had been a couple of years of auditioning. Two years of auditioning yeah. and nothing. Yeah, maybe maybe longer than that, but I think that's about right. Yeah. Did you ever get a call back in those two years? Yes. But yeah. you never booked anything? No. No, I tested for one thing that was... You know, about a, a, I don't know, six months to a year before The Outsiders. That was the thing that, that was the like the last straw for me when I didn't get that thing because that was as close as, I, as I'd ever come to getting anything. But two years of failure. So right. now you get the audition for The Outsiders. You get the audition for The Outsiders. And I say to myself, uh, if, if, I'm going to go out for this because, you know, I was a I was a huge fan of the movie. What kid, what young boy wasn't pretending to be, you know, Pony Boy and Johnny and all the other soda pop and all of those guys. I know me and my cousins did. We pretended that all the time. And and so, of course, I wanted to to, you know, go up for it. And uh, but I but I, I did make a conscious decision 
to tell, to, I, I mean, I did make a, a, a promise to myself that if it didn't happen, then I was going to go and follow through with this other new dream that I had. And, uh, and so, uh, of course I got it. And, and so everything changed, but I will tell you this. I don't think I've ever had a chance to tell the story. So I'm excited, but, um, I went to a, uh, this is just to go, to go back to Mad Men for a second. Um, I, I, uh, that junior high school was a, had a profound impact on me. And uh, from that moment, after I got the Outsiders, essentially all through high school, I was tutored. So I never had the high school experience. I never had um, high school friends. Um, so my junior high experience, my junior high friends, they were essentially my high school, what most people's high school experience would be. Most people don't keep up with the people they went to junior high school with. And uh, we have regular reunions, though. And this school was just extraordinarily special and impacted so many young kids' lives. And, and it, you can tell because we all still love each other and still get together. And uh, so anyway, at one of our reunions uh, that we had, it happened to, to come a couple of weeks before we were about to wrap on Mad Men. And, uh, and I went to this um, reunion. And at the reunion... It was a big reunion. A bunch of people showed up, a bunch of teachers and students. It was just so great. But somebody brought an old VHS thing that they'd burned onto a disc, I guess, of, of our last dance production recital in ninth grade. So this was a, a dance production. We would do a recital at the end of each semester. And so dance production, you know, every semester, we're staying after school, we're choreographing our dances that we will ultimately do at, at our big recital for all of our friends and family at the end of the school year, at the end of the semester. So I had to leave school early to go and shoot the pilot for the outsiders. But I demanded that I at least be able to go back so I could participate in my last dance production show with all of my friends. So I got to go back. So they're showing this at the reunion. And now had you asked me before that junior high school reunion, as I'm watching this tape, um, and the, the, the dance recital ends and, uh, we're all standing on stage, uh, as they're uh, clapping for us and we've all got our arms around each other. And, and, you know, some of us, not all of us were ninth graders in dance production, but there was a large majority of dance production that were ninth graders. So a lot of us were going to be leaving. That was to be our last dance recital. So a lot of us were very emotional about it. And the camera went in tight. It was panning across all the kids' faces, and you know, and there's mine, and there's everybody, and, and we've all got our arms, around, and everybody's just sobbing, just sobbing, you know, and uh, incredibly sad. But it was it was um, a, a really crazy moment for me because had you asked me before that moment why I was an actor or why I was a performer, I would not have been able to tell you. And it was so great because I, I mean, I, I literally, I had this conversation with myself, you know, over the year, over the course of my life in this business, I've asked myself, why, why do I do this? Why am I in this? I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I could answer that question if somebody asked, had asked me. But in that moment, as I was seeing that video, it made me realize that that was the moment that and the recitals that preceded it, but that moment especially because I knew it was all ending, um, that was the moment that my 
desire to be a performer was born because it was a very unique ex creative experience that we had all shared together that was now ending and we knew it was never going to happen again but we also knew and so that part of it was sad but we also knew how special and, and unique it had been and so that was incredibly also fulfilling at the same time and and so I was so excited because I, I found I found it's like I had found something that I had lost you know and uh, and uh, and so two weeks later what, so anyway in this moment I realized holy shit uh, I've been doing this for however long it was at that point 25 years or whatever and I've been chasing that moment that's the moment I've been chasing all this time and I had forgotten because it had been so long and I had yet to have that I had yet to find it and I realized holy shit I found it I'm on it this I'm about to have that experience for the first time that one that one moment that I've been chasing for 25 years I'm about to have it in two weeks and so at the rap when I rapped I told that story to them and let them all know and thanked them for uh, reminding me why I do this and for giving me that moment that I had been chasing for so long now the the wonderful graciousness of my employers throughout my career, as, but, but as of late, uh, I've been very lucky that I've actually been now, I've had that experience a couple more times even. And, uh, uh, but it's great to finally know why I'm even doing it, you know? It was, uh, it was just a really incredible moment. Um, and uh, I just, I, 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 I was giddy. I couldn't wait to run home and tell my wife. <laughs> Hey, everybody. As you know, you've heard me speak on this podcast of the importance of clean drinking water. But just if not more important is breathing clean air. The air inside our homes can be up to 100 times more polluted than the air outside. It's a fact. Dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses circulate throughout your home as we speak. Plus outgasses from your furniture, walls, floors, not to mention ozone, radon, and other chemical contaminants. It's potentially toxic soup in your home, and no ordinary air purifier costing less than $1,000 or more can get rid of all those indoor pollutants until now. And that's why I'm so excited about the Air Doctor. It removes all of these contaminants and more. This product normally retails for $600. That's right. Look on Amazon. You'll see it's $600. But for you listening today, you're going to get $300 off and be able to take it home for $299 plus shipping. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and enter the promo code Barry at checkout. You save $300, and it's one of the smartest and most affordable ways to protect the health of your kids yourselves, and your family. AirDoctorPro.com, promo code Barry. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. You tell me okay. what comes to mind. You got it. Could be a word, a sentence, a story. Could be anything that comes okay. to mind. John Singleton. I was uh, friends with uh, uh, Leo DiCaprio. And Leo was up for the lead in that in higher learning, and 
I went with him to meet John Singleton at John's house. And all we did while we were there at the time, we were all video game junkies. And at the time, uh, we loved this arcade game called NBA Jams. It was only in the arcade, you know. And John had an NBA Jams, full standing NBA Jams arcade game at his house. And so all we did was sit there and play NBA Jams all day long. And then uh, I got a chance to go in an audition for a smaller role in the movie. And he remembered me from that day playing NBA Jams. And I'm pretty certain it helped him to cast me in that role. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, funny. John Hamm. Um, John is uh, the um, model by which I try to uh, carry myself on a set and work. He is uh, really fun to watch and, uh, and just so incredibly good at, at what he does. And he is one of those witty, funny type of guys that can come up with shit on the fly and, and you know, is always cracking everybody up. Um, uh, just a, a great heart and uh, he took me to my first Super Bowl. So that was very special. David Lynch. Oh, man. I was uh, sitting around one day and out of nowhere, uh, I, I was a huge Twin Peaks fan when I was a kid. Had the album, used to walk around with it in my 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 Walkman, listen to the whole album all day long, which is kind of strange for 13, 14 year old to be doing, but, uh, and uh, was, was a huge admirer. And out of nowhere, my manager called me up one day and said, um, they've asked if you'd like to be in uh, the new Twin Peaks. I said, well, why, yes, if, I mean, of course, what, I don't care what it is, I'll do it, yes. And, uh, and showed up and, and he's just, he is a real um, uh, master, obviously, of his craft, but he's so sweet. You know, I, I guess, you know, you never know when you're going into these situations, especially somebody you admire, you know, iconic like he is, you know, how am, am I, is my impression of him gonna be ruined when I meet him in real life and what's gonna happen? But he couldn't have been sweeter. I went up to him afterwards when I rapped on it and I whispered in his ear that this was, had been a dream come true and that he was a bucket list director. And, you know, he just said, oh, aren't you sweet? Aren't you sweet? He's got this voice. And always on the set. Even if we're in a, if we, it doesn't matter if you were in a, on a, in a scene that was shooting outside with hundreds of background actors or if you were in a room half the size of this, He's always talking through his bullhorn <laughs> and okay, that's good. Let's go again. I probably shouldn't be doing impersonations of David Lynch, but uh, <laughs> he, he, it was a, it was a real treat and a dream come true. Mindy Kaling. Mindy Kaling. Mindy was a fan of Mad Men and she reached out to me and asked very sweetly if I would ever come and do her show, which of course I said yes. And then I didn't hear from her again for like over a year. And then out of, out of nowhere, she's hit me up and said, okay, so we've got you for three episodes. Uh, okay, great. Yeah, that was fun. Billy Bob Thornton. Hmm. 
Billy Bob. You know, Billy Bob uh, and I were on the Outsiders together, and he uh, and my mom bonded really quickly because he's from Arkansas, and my mom is from Arkansas. And, uh, and so they became good friends and when I was doing Evening Shade they needed somebody to play a bit part and my mom recommended Billy Bob for it. It was like a one scene type of deal but then he came on and, and befriended um, Linda and Harry and uh, then they loved him so much they put him in their next series and then he met John Ritter and then you know he and John Ritter became best friends and started doing all sorts of great stuff together so uh, I uh, I love Billy Bob. I could tell you a lot of great Billy Bob stories, but I I don't I I think they're all too dirty. <laughs> Tim Roth. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I admire Tim a, a lot. <laughs> I did an episode of the show he did, and we were shooting a scene, and I was supposed to be playing this this tough guy, uh, bodyguard character. And, and he, uh, I'm supposed to do something. I don't remember if I like push him or something. And 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 then we're doing a take, and he decides he's gonna he's gonna push me back, but not tell me he's gonna do it. And uh, and I fell flat on my ass. I, I was so unprepared. And he just, I mean, he's a, a much smaller man than I am, but I was just totally unprepared for it. And he came at me, boy, and like the force of a bulldog, just wham, and I. Flew back, and he immediately was very, you know, apologetic. And, and so you didn't stay in the scene. No, well, I, I didn't. I he didn't stay in the scene. I don't. I don't think he thought he was going to be able to push me onto the ground. And I flew. I mean, he, I flew. I, my feet went off the ground. Jennifer Love Hewitt. I don't know what to say about her other than that she's very sweet and kind. We did a. I did a show. I did an episode of a series she was on when she was a kid. And then we kind of stayed a little bit in contact, and then I came on and did a, a thing on her on her other on the ghost show, um, but always very nice and sweet. David Caruso, I, I, intimidating for sure. That's really all I can say about that man. I was very uh, uh, took by his in, intensity. Casey Affleck, uh, we had fun. We did a little improv that made it into the movie. Actually, it was pretty funny. Francis Ford Coppola. During the Outsiders, we never met. Uh, he, you know, as far as I knew, he he was associated with the project, but we never saw him. A couple of years later, after the show had ended, though, I was at a place and I saw him there. I was at a restaurant, and uh, and I said uh, to my friend, "Oh, there's Francis Coppola. I want to go introduce myself to him because I'd never met him." So I went up, I said, "Mr. Coppola, uh, my name is Jay Ferguson. I was." Uh, I played Pony Boy on the, the TV version of the, the Outsiders. I uh, just never got a chance to meet you. And he looked at me and shook my hand. He's like, yeah. That's, that's it. <laughs> so he probably hated the show. <laughs> I, don't, just don't, I think he was a little preoccupied at the time with something else, and I was a nuisance. Your mom, Bobby Ferguson. Bobby Ferguson. You know, uh, she gave up her dream of being in this business so that she could help me help guide my journey. So I'm always eternally grateful for that. And the great job that she did in raising me and, and supporting me. And uh, as a parent now, I can really appreciate single parents. 
I don't know. I mean, my wife and I struggled to get it done together. And, uh, and she did it on her own. I mean, my dad was around, but he was in Dallas, you know, there's only so much you can do from out there. And, uh, so really just admire her will and toughness and, you know, she, she, she never took any shit from anybody. So, uh, she, she set a good example. Your proudest moment in show business. You know, it's so strange and I, I just can't believe I'm going to say this, but um, for years, and I still kind of feel this way about award shows, but for years I have railed against award shows, you know. Uh, when I was younger, my friends used to make fun of me. because I, I grew up with primarily actor friends, you know. We were all kid actors together and, and we would all sit around and talk about, you know, the what ifs of the future and if we ever got nominated for an Oscar and, you know, everybody's talking about going to the Oscars when they're nominated. And I'd always be the one that'd say, I'm not going to go. I won't go. If I'm nominated, I won't go. And they'd always tell me, yeah, Jay, shut up. You'll go. You have no idea. You'll go. And, uh, you know, I stopped watching them. I stopped really caring about them at all. Any award shows. So I'm on Mad Men. And uh, my first year there, uh, and... And they have, uh, they, they're nominated for the, the best drama. And they'd won it, I think, the previous three years before I was on it. And they were nice enough to invite me to the, the ceremony. So there I am, you know, having, I mean, I'd already shot all my stuff for the first season. I think I already knew I was being made a regular. So, uh, you know, I was part of the, the family and I was there with all the rest of the cast. And who, who, none of which were hopeful that we were going to win again. Um, and here I am, and now at an award show after all these years of railing against award shows. And uh, <laughs> not one of my prouder moments. It, it uh, when it won, I leapt out of <laughs> I leapt out of my seat like uh, like the Cowboys had just scored a touchdown. <laughs> That's how I reacted, and and I remember the casting director sitting right right behind me, and she, uh, Kiernan uh, Shipko, was sitting next to her, and he, she tapped me and she said, um, "Listen, if you guys win, will you please escort Kiernan up because she doesn't have anybody and she's wearing this big dress?" And I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, sure." You know, she was the little girl on the show, and so we won, and I jumped up and I just ran. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't remember any of it. It just all went out the window. I had gum in my mouth. I like forgot. I was, I was going to spit my gum out. I had gum. I, I, I'm on stage. I'm, and, uh, but as I was standing on that stage and Matt Weiner was giving his acceptance speech and I was there with all these new friends of mine that I'd made on this new show, it, wa it was um, crazy how proud I felt in that moment because uh, on a, in a place where I never felt like I would feel proud or supportive. Um, I, you know, having come from, I think the reason that I, I felt proud in that moment was a couple years before that, I didn't even know if I was going to do this anymore. You know, I, I didn't know if I could do it anymore. Uh, I didn't know um, if my time had passed and, and I, I, I was seriously starting to consider once we started to have a family, what else could I do? Because this is all I've ever known. And 
man, if I've got to switch now, I don't know what it would be. I mean, I guess we move up to wine country and I pick grapes, you know, uh, uh, be somewhere that I love and, you know, just live a very meager existence if I have to. But I seriously had to start considering because it just wasn't happening for me. And so to have gone from that kind of mindset to suddenly being there uh, in that moment, I, I felt extraordinarily proud. Yeah, on that whole night. I mean, man, it was a, it was a magical night. I just wish I would have spit my gum out. I got a million texts afterwards about, uh, you know, hey, congratulations, next time spit your fucking gum out, <laughs> you know. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. I was on a show called Surface, and I had, um, we shot it in Wilmington, North Carolina, and it wasn't necessarily the, the best show or anything, um, but it was a fun show, and I had a lot of fun doing it, and I loved living in Wilmington, and my wife and I, who weren't married yet, uh, she, I had years when my wife and I first got together right after we got together I had to leave to go live in Vancouver for like six months to do something and after that experience we said if I ever have to go out of town to do anything again she's just gonna have to come with me because it's just too rough being apart like that so then a few years later I get this thing in Wilmington I got to go out there for at least six to eight months and so she decides to come with me. so we're living together for the first time um, so that was great uh, it was just my speed of the town out there, you know, no horns honking, nobody driving fast, you know, beach type of, you know, flip flops and shorts all over the place. Men wear that to the fancy restaurants down there. And um, it was a sci-fi show. I'm a big sci-fi geek. So that was kind of a dream fulfilled getting to participate in all that kind of fun stuff. And, uh, and I really wanted to keep doing it and then it got canned and, I was so depressed. Uh, I, we were living in this house in Wilmington and the lease, I had to sign a year lease when I got in it. And I got in it in July and we were, we were canned in like February, maybe January, February. And Jenny came back to uh, LA and I just stayed there. I was like, I, I almost threw in the towel then because it was one of those moments where I had become fully aware now after so many successes or after so many failures uh, and, and pilots not getting shooting pilots that never got picked up. I'd finally gotten on one that had gotten picked up and now it had been canceled. And I was thinking about now I've got to go all the way back to that square one and just to get back to this point that we're at right now. And I knew how hard it was to do that. And the odds are just, you know, as an actor, the odds are always against you that you'll even get the job. Then once you get the job, the odds are against you that that job will get picked up. Then the odds are against you that it'll get a second season. And then it maybe starts to get a little easier after that. I wouldn't be able to tell you because I've never been in that situation, except for Mad Men, but it was already established. Um, now, you know, you can, um, you, you can, uh, as a creative, if you wanted to look at it from the creative 
angle, they've even got to go through more of the odds being against it. For a writer, you pitch a show, the odds are they're not going to pick it up. Then they get you to write a script, the odds aren't they aren't going to shoot the pilot. And then on and on and on, right? So knowing that at the time, it just seemed so incredibly daunting and so unrealistic, really, that that I could get back to that place or that I wanted to even get back, that I wanted to have to put in the work to get back to that place. And, uh, and so I just, I grew a big beard. I stayed in North Carolina. I'm like, fuck it, I'm just going to stay out here until this lease is up because I don't want to go back there, you know, other than my wife. There was just nothing. I, I was just... I thought I was I was in hog heaven out there, you know. Um, but eventually, you know, came back. Um, I'm pretty sure that that was the time. It was after that show that I had one of those droughts, though. Um, and but I think it was it was self inflicted more so uh, than anything else, probably. Um, but it and, and I'm not sure how I used it to propel myself towards the next one. I actually, I feel like I used it to push myself further down a hole uh, and then eventually, you know, pulled myself up by the bootstraps. Um, but it would be another three years, I think, after that until I booked my next, um, like, steady gig. And that was five days after, I auditioned for it five days after our oldest son had been born and I was dead broke. I had no idea what was what was gonna, that was the time where we were like thinking about where we're we gonna go, what are we gonna do, and uh, and just a, it was like a miracle, you know. I got on a, a show that was uh, it was a straight to series show, which never happens, you know. It wasn't even a pilot. It was like boom, thirteen episodes. Moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, with our newborn baby. You know, we moved there when he was like four weeks old. What's your definition of dead broke? Uh, my definition of dead broke is uh, about a thousand dollars left in the bank. Wow. Maybe a little less. We, you know, would get down in the, in the, it got down there. You know, I I uh, I spent my last bit of money. My mom's house got broken into. We were about to have a baby, and I, so I I didn't have the money to do it. It was going to make us broke, but. I wanted to have wanted to feel safe, so I paid to have a big fence and and gate put in front of our house. But that sucked everything else that I had left. And then uh, and and that was one of those times where I was like, okay, I'll do I'll do anything, whatever it is, I'll do it. And uh, you know, this thing came along, which on paper didn't really seem that appealing to me, but it ended up being something I really enjoyed doing and loving the people I was working with. Last question, what advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town, child of divorce, just wants to dance? (laughs) 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 To find its way into this business and have the kind of successful career that you've had. Mm. This is important. This is important for young people to hear. What I've learned over the course of my career is there are no bad jobs to do. Because even the ones that, even the ones that are that are you know are shitty, that are gonna be shitty, and nothing's ever gonna come of it. You know, I did a I did a movie that I knew was terrible. I knew it was gonna be awful, but I did it because I want, needed to get paid, and it was gonna give me a, a summer vacation. And it took me out to uh, uh, South Car- Charleston, South Carolina, for the summer. 
I was still a young, uh, a fairly young man, hadn't met my wife yet. Um, and uh, my part was very small, so I'd work like one day a week, but they kept me out there the whole summer. Met one of my best, one of my best friends on that movie. Now, there was no other reason for me to do that movie. Now, the, 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 the real reasons at the time were financial, sure, but the more ethereal reason was to meet my buddy. And so what I found is that down the line, no matter how shitty the production has been, no matter how terrible my experience may have been on it, something has come out of it. Whether it's a new friend, some sort of new professional relationship, a new idea that you get, whatever it is, you, get, you can get something out of even a terrible gig as an actor. And I think that's really important for young actors to know, to believe in, and embrace uh, it because you know this business is just so big and there's you never know you just never know whether you're going to be in the room with somebody reading some terrible lines that some shit hack writer has written somehow has gotten the money to film this thing but that person that you're you know acting with in five years is going to go win the Academy Award and then bring you back to do something with them. You know, who knows? Or a director or, or just a friend that you make that goes on to be a good friend for life. You know, those are, those are, those are gifts. And, and they shouldn't be squandered and they shouldn't be um, uh, overshadowed by the quality of the project. But it's true. There is a ton of luck involved in this business. And, and yes, have I earned some things? Have I you know, proven myself a little bit, maybe uh, to some degree, to, you know, to deserve something. Uh, uh, maybe I, you would get me to concede that on a very minimal level that has happened. I truly believe that I have just been so lucky to be in the right place at the right time. It's such a stupid cliche, but it, 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 I feel like it's, it's true. Um, but for the young uh, person, you know, there's a great quote that a friend of mine said to me years ago, and it's so true as an actor. And he was saying it with more of a physical context, contextual meaning, but but it can apply in a figurative sense as well. And that is, you got to stay ready to be ready. And you know, he was telling me at the time because I would go in and out of shape, and you know, I'd say, oh, if I get something I need to be, you know, in shape for, I'll get a trainer and work out then. No, 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 you're not gonna get hired for that gig, buddy. Cause you gotta look like that when you go in there. And so he was like, you gotta stay ready to be ready, man. And I always like that quote, but I think that's a good quote for a young person. You know, if, if uh, the, the, the knowing your line, showing up on time and being respectful for, to the crew as a professional, certainly. And, uh, and if it's your dream, you always, you chase it, you chase it. And you don't let it, you don't let it get away from you, you know? You just got to keep chasing it. Jay Ferguson, this has been really, really amazing. Great. I'm so grateful that you came here. I want to share with our audience one thing before I let you go. What happens when you're the lead in a show is you are hit by every single thing. You normally have your own publicist, but you also have the studio publicist, the network publicist. Everybody wants you to do everything. Mm. And 
you can't do everything. And the fact that you showed up here not really knowing what you were getting into and sat here for so long and gave our audience such an inspirational interview, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, man. Great luck to you on Living Biblically. Check it out on CBS. Amazing show. You're going to love it. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Kenny Schmenny, April 2nd, 2017. Heading reads, advice and insight from the best, five stars. Thanks, Kenny Schmenny. All right, it reads, Barry is so open and honest and guides the discussion thoughtfully. How does he get these guests? They are the best in the world at what they do, and their lessons are all right here for the taking. No other podcast like this is out there. All right. Thanks a lot, Kenny Schmenny. Congratulations. You are a winner. Lastly, I'd like to thank our sponsors, AquaTrue. Again, go to industrystandardwater.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get $100 off and get the best-tasting water you can ever imagine. And I Killed JFK, the documentary in the interviews about the only man in history to admit to killing JFK. The documentary is incredible. you love it. The interviews are insane with the last remaining living experts. Check it out, IKilledJFK.com. And the air doctor, removing dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and everything bad in your home air and you can save $300 right now go to airdoctorpro.com enter the promo code Barry that's airdoctorpro.com enter the promo code Barry and start breathing in clean and healthy air today and lastly my thanks to Wondery check out all the best podcasts in the world there at wondery.com thanks a lot everybody I've really enjoyed today. See you next time. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.